Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host Vince Peart. Once again and always we are joined by our co-host Tilly Baden. Tilly my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello everyone. Um, Hi, yeah, things are are going well, thank you. I've been um, doing a lot of work this last weekend because of of my work hard, play hard mantra. Um, Need to build up a bit of a holiday fund again. Um, But I did go out and see um, a play at the theatre called The Twelve Angry Men. Have you seen the play before? I've heard of the film. I'm aware of the film, but I haven't seen the play. Yeah, so it's it's based on a 1950s film. about a jury trial and it just mm. made me I mean because obviously I'm a magistrate so I have to make judgments on deciding whether people are guilty or not guilty um fortunately not for a murder case or um a case involving where, where the death penalty would be used fortunately we don't have that in the UK um but it is interesting about how um, like your memory works and how perception works. And as soon as you you get up there on a witness stand and you start to tease apart what someone's actually seen in the past, stories don't stack up. And it's just a, a stark reminder, really, about how how fallible we all are with our memories. And each time that we try and remember something particularly traumatic, we, we're not likely to get it right. So a um, bit of a reflective episode for me at the weekend after the play because obviously I can't just go and enjoy myself I have to look at it from a social work and psychological perspective I just I get fascinated by things like that do you spend much time in court in your social work role obviously you do as a magistrate but as a social worker in your role now are you currently in court that much no hardly at all I I advise on court cases um but it's the social workers the allocated workers that go um Mm. I've I've been pulled into court a couple of times when it's a particularly complex case, but um, no, I'm just giving advice, which is quite nice now. Did, I don't did, have to go to court much. Did you, you say it was quite nice, but did you enjoy that buzz of the court? I'm not saying you would enjoy the, the matters before the court, because of course, <laughs> if we're before the courts in, in social work, it's inevitably to discuss something that's quite traumatic for the people at the heart of it. But a lot of people can sort of thrive in that court environment. It's quite grandiose. They're on a stage, they're on a pedestal, they kind of like it. How did you find it? Did you sort of shine in the court environment or was it something that you found quite difficult? I mean, it's not something that I mind doing, mm. um, but I, I prefer being on the other side, making the judgments and <laughs> scrutinising other Fair people. Enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, <laughs> it's never particularly comfortable if you're being cross-examined and cross-questioned and things. That can be, that's tricky no matter whether, well, whether you're in court or just in a meeting or, or anything really. Um, that's always a difficult position to be in. I mean, I, I don't mind the court process. I think mm. it's um, when you're working on a court case, um, you, I always feel like things are quite safe when they're in court because yeah. actually then it, it, it's no longer you making the decisions. You're just putting the evidence there and, and you don't, you're just following a process, really. I always say to social workers that haven't been to court before, don't 
panic about it. Um, there's a lot of hype around the court cases that, oh, it's going to be the most tough thing that you do. Um, well, actually, for me, I found going out and doing an unannounced visit to someone that we had no record of far more terrifying than going and standing in the witness box. Because um, I think it, you know what you're going to face when you're in court, hopefully, mm. anyway, if, if you've had your good legal advice. But going on and knocking on a stranger's door can be much more terrifying. So for all those social workers out there that haven't had that experience yet, don't panic. It's not as bad as you might think it's going to be. Saying that, Tilly, generally when people say don't panic, it's because they should be in a situation where they may rightly panic. So I think if we could offer the advice, <laughs> but take the words don't panic out there, because that's what's on the front of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is don't panic. You know? <laughs> It's like if I were to if I was to tell you, don't think about a polar bear, you're immediately going to think about a polar bear. So, I think we should just, you know, I, I'll try, I'll try. Um, okay, I'll go try on. You've been in court. I'm going to, far I'm going to try and explain it without using the terms "don't panic." Um, the court process is isn't troubling within social work. It is troubling by virtue of the cases that are to be considered. It's certainly troubling for the clients that we find ourselves debating lives over within the family courts in my line of work. In terms of for the social worker, it's incredibly planned. I always find that the most difficult cases in social work are those between thresholds. Should it be a child need case, should you escalate the child protection? It's child protection, should you go on public law outline? We're managing this case under pre-proceedings, but we think the children shouldn't be there. Can we find somebody else? It's those decisions which are difficult because they're a lot of the time it's kind of fly by the seat of your pants in those moments. When you're in court, if you do your job and it's regimented, it's generally pretty settled, particularly if children are placed out of parental care. If children are with foster carers or are looked after in residential care or placed with family members ideally that's the situation you want you'd you'd almost always prefer children to be placed with family members wherever that's suitable and viable and in their best interests and a risk assessment has deemed that possible you'd always want that and if that's the case you you get 26 weeks to do your work and it's planned you know what needs to be done it's in an order so just go and read the order it'll tell you exactly what to do and it's pretty pretty streamlined the difficulty with court work in my opinion comes when you have court work that is competing with other deadlines like you know you might have an emergency referral come in a re-referral comes back to you which is why for me I think the more specialised you can get social work teams, the better. If you have teams that just deal with court work, excellent, because all of your timelines can be predicated around the court's timelines. You can work around that. If you have teams that are just assessment, just child in need, just child protection, just specialising in perhaps children who are at risk of uh, radicalisation or the, on the cusp of involvement with criminal organisations, I think that works really well. What do you think, Teddy? Because obviously you've come from a peripatetic background when we first started talking many, many years ago, five, six years ago, you were working as a perisocial worker. So are you kind of on my side of the fence? Do you believe that we should be more specialised in social work or do you think we should cast our net far and wide? Oh, it's difficult because adults is, is a difficult uh, is it completely different to, to children's services and it's difficult to sort of categorise cases mm. so much. Um, you often get teams that are se separated into intake work, review work or complex and long term. Um, but 
even then it, it it's hard to sometimes differentiate because we don't have statutory timescales like you do in children's and in, in child protection cases you've got your time to do your assessment and then you're in com uh conferences and and reviews and things and that that's very uh, structured i suppose whereas an, in adults it's not um so it is more difficult to divide up work and i think when you've got social workers that specialize in just one area um you're often working with adults with multiple different needs and yeah. um that's when you get issues with people falling in between services because no one will then take responsibility if people have got dual or, or triple diagnoses uh, that um, makes sense you're fighting so over it yeah and actually that that takes up more time than if the social worker just got on with it um rather than arguing about who's going to take the case so um i i like more general teams i think um mm. where social workers are doing a bit of everything and i think it helps then building up a really competent workforce um but i can see arguments for both sides i'm not i'm not massively um stuck in one particular um lane on that Spoken um, like a true yeah. peripatetic social worker. <laughs> right, let's get on with this week's show then. Yeah, that wasn't even our topic, was it? So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one, all the same. Uh, so, listeners, this week's uh, topic is should social workers be doing a lot more for our clients? And we may come full circle, Tilly. We may bring in a little bit of what we discussed there in the opening about more specialised roles. So, listeners, this week's uh, topic comes from a story that we ran over at mysocialworknews.com last week. And I love this story. I love a good, nice, wholehearted human interest story, particularly if it involves a social worker. And this social worker is called Kathy Hing. And Kathy was a social worker working with a shelter for single adult men experiencing homelessness. And she started to discover themes coming through about major issues, how car repairs were often a make or break situation for her clients. And she told CBS when she shared a story with them, and she explained that it doesn't have to be a major repair to be five or 600 bucks. And when you're just surviving, that can break your entire budget. So having identified this, Kathy decided to fix the problem herself. She became a mechanic. She completed a two-year training program. And then in 2013, some 11 years ago, she founded somewhere called The Lift Garage. And in her hometown of Minnesota, she charged low-income residents just £15 an hour for labour, and there was no markup on parts whatsoever. So people come into the garage, were just getting £15 an hour for the labour costs, and then the parts they were getting at cost. And she spoke to the Minnesota Now podcast. This is why the story's come back out, because obviously she started this some um, 11 years ago. She spoke to CBS. 10 years ago, but she's, you know, spoken to the Minnesota Now podcast and it's kind of come back to the public's attention. And she was speaking to the podcast last week and she said, when you live in poverty, it's like a giant Jenga game. That's how I picture it. You pull one wrong block and everything falls. And I was often seeing that car repair was either that block that helped build you up or the block that made everything fall. People would come to the church asking for money for car repair assistance. The details changed, but the gist was the same. If I don't get my car fixed, I'm not going to be able to get to work. I'll lose my job. 
I won't be able to pay rent and everything will fall apart. Now, she had no background whatsoever in mechanics or cars at all, and she initially did everything herself. She fixed cars, she did road estimates, she cleaned the bathroom of the carriage, and she raised money for customers who were still struggling to afford repairs whilst working two other jobs at the same time. What an absolute legend. Kathy, I wish, I wish I'd have known your story, Kathy, about six weeks ago, because you would have been my social work hero of the year. But anyway, Tilly, let's, it's, she's an early contender. Kathy Haig <laughs> is an early front runner. Kathy, you are an early front runner for social work of the year 2024. We've got 11 months this year left. But my God, Kathy, people are going to be hard pressed to knock you off that perch. So, Tilly, what do you think of that story? What would you say to Kathy Haig? I mean, she is the definition of a community hero, isn't she? She, like, what a woman. I mean, how many people do you know that would go to those lengths to support vulnerable people? Not um, me. Not and, me. Uh, no. I mean, I, I don't think I'd, oh, I'd be useless mechanic anyway. I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, but how incredible. Um, we have... Charities and, and organisations often start by people like Cathy who notice that there are gaps in statutory services and resources and really want to make a difference. And I love a local yeah. charity that, that does things like this, that before they get big and become like bound to a, a board and you get all those other complications and it becomes very corporate just a person doing good for their local community just mm. warms my heart she's she's amazing um it's probably more than kathy's well, it's probably grassroots campaigning because it's a yeah. localised issue and it's a localised problem it's people from the area responding directly to these issues and it's going from provided a client directly. I think there's an issue, I'll do this and I'll support. And it's it genuinely is, it's people like Kathy that make the world go around because that is true altruism. That is true altruistic nature of people like Kathy who keep the world going around because it's just direct. Now she clearly isn't doing this for attention because it's the first people have heard of a story for 10 years and she's still going, she's still going. And it's things like that that make a valid difference to people, that makes a massive difference and, these people aren't having to fill out forms and having to get a referral route. There's not a gatekeeper. There's nobody who's having to go to a panel. It's, do you know what? I need to get this car fixed. I need to get my car fixed. I'm going to lose my job. I mean, some of the people, when she did the interviews, some of the people actually live in their vehicles, which is an increasing phenomenon, certainly in the USA, but I imagine potentially a lot in England as well, Telly, people living in mm -hmm. the cars. Um, I remember yeah. when I was a, a, a young, a young boy, 15, 16, um, there was a man in my hometown, hometown of Alston, Cumbria, who lived in his car for a while. We used to see him parking up in a garage in the car every night and not coming out. And obviously, he was sleeping in his car for a time. Um, and that was God. That was in the late 90s. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not that uncommon at all. Um, I think Kathy's a hero. I think she's an absolute legend. And to do things like that, it's wonderful. What would you do, Tilly, if you were, if you could put your hand to that kind of thing? What what skills what skills do you think you could utilize or develop that would kind of make a similarly positive impact on the clients that your team supports right now? 
I'll say the same, by the way. This is going to be unfair. You go, then I'll go, okay? <laughs> just, just so you know, there's not all the pressure on you. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have a go too. But what would you say? What would make a real difference, a sort of really sort of tangible hard skill or a provision of services that you feel, if you had the time and if you had the funding, that one-to-one could make a real difference in the lives of your clients? So, I mean, I've always, I've actually considered doing this um, equine-related therapy, um, so therapy I could have guessed that. So, I, I mean, could have guessed that. <laughs> I've got um, one of our really good friends, Katie, actually. She works for a service called The Horse Course, um, mm-hmm. which is um, a, a charity organization that does therapy for, it started off with children, but now they do it for um, for veterans, so um, people that have been in the military. They yeah. do it for people experiencing um, mental health crises, substance misuse, trauma, everything now. Um, mm. And they use horses as a way to facilitate communication and building up um, those social skills, um, confidence um, as a way to, to speak and, and get those trauma traumatic events out there in the open. Um, it's incredible the work that she does and she's always asked me every time a job comes up she's like oh Tilly do you want to come and do it and I I have to be honest and I say if the money was better I would do it in a heartbeat but I just it's so poorly paid which is through no fault of the charity at all but just charity work and and, and voluntary work in the third sector is so poorly paid compared to statutory um, social work that I can't I can't do it. Um, which oh, maybe I could if I, I lived a more frugal life, but I, I, I don't. I selfishly put my life lifestyle that I live before me. Uh, is I that don't selfish? Want to now. Is uh, that selfish? In a way, it is, but it's it's real. Um, and I think there's a lot of social workers out there that would jump at a heartbeat to go and work for voluntary the voluntary sector, but can't because they've got families, they've got mortgages, mm. they've got rent to pay, um, and and salaries just aren't comparable. Um, no, no, of course. We live in a, mean... a, a, a difficult times. There's a cost of living crisis. Um, things are really expensive. Um, it's just the reality. So, but that's what you would do. Yeah. You would set up some sort of equine service. Yeah, or I'd just go and work for the horse course. I think they're amazing. What, they're, they're what needs... People. What needs would that fulfill for your clients? Obviously, Kathy, she's doing a tangible thing. You know, she's fixing clients' cars. What what need would that fulfill for your clients? Well, we have a massive shortage of mental health services in the area. I mean, well, and nationally and probably internationally as well. Um, they People don't have access to that sort of therapy or support. Or if they do have access to um, therapies, it's normally very prescriptive done Mm. by a a medical model um where you go in you have six sessions of counseling and that's it that then you're supposed to go away and and that's all the services that you can get Um, you've You've probably had to wait a year to get on that counseling program exactly so bolstering up mental health services and, and being there for people that have experienced trauma um or difficulties in their life it's it can be a massive help um it's not going to fix everything but it's an outlet and that's Mm. positive so it'd be making a difference for them so what about you then um do you know what honestly it would be some sort of 
nanny slash cleaning service the the amount of clients i've supported who would have avoided the snowball effect of getting into a difficult position if they'd already had a bit of free childcare, if they'd already had someone that could come round every Sunday, tidy the house up, give them a couple of hours away from the kids just to get some headspace and just to get on top of things, to do the laundry for the week, to tidy the house up and just to get on top of things. It, when you when you go through client stories a lot of the time, you can generally find a kind of nucleus, a kind of genesis point, a, a seminal point where it all went wrong. It all went wrong. And sometimes, Tilly, it can be ever so minor, tiny things like, you know, I couldn't get childcare that night, so I asked someone to look after the kids who shouldn't have. Um, I didn't have time to get to the doctors with the kids that day. I couldn't go to a job interview. I missed this appointment. I missed this date because of this with the kids. I couldn't keep on top of the housework. I couldn't keep on top of the cleaning. It just got out of hand. It happened to be that day that the social worker came around and so on. Very, very little things. Now, yes, look, there can be many drivers behind that. It could be mental health issues. It's often intergenerational trauma. It's often adverse childhood experiences come to the fore later in life through maladaptive coping mechanisms, reliance upon drug and alcohol, and so on, vulnerabilities. There can be many, many reasons. But a lot of the time, one little practical thing going wrong can set off a chain of events that can really really turn out to be quite catastrophic and sometimes people just need just the tiniest little bit of a leg up not financial not financial a lot of the issues of course can be driven financially but that's not necessarily something that you know you can't just really set up a charity to give people money there are plenty of charities that do that but they take ages to, you know to get around and have referrals and so on and usually you're limited you can only get a certain amount of year and that's it and it has to be specific specific thing you have to give receipts and so on but i just think a, a, a service where you could say do you know what I'll come round, I'll watch your kids for a few hours, I'll give you a bit of a breather, have some space, go out on a night out, enjoy yourself. I think that would be particularly useful for younger parents, single mothers, uh, families with a lot of children, particularly young mothers and fathers who are potentially care leavers, who care experienced and don't have the family networks that perhaps other people would enjoy or those family networks are deemed to pose a risk to newborn babies. I just think a simple service like that would offer the kind of practical, loving, holistic, nurturing support that people really need. People don't really want a professional to come in their life, sit on the settee, ask them questions, go away, write a report and send it through the post and tell them everything that's wrong in their life. People generally just want a little bit of help, Tilly, and that's what I would like to do, have some sort of service. Essentially, Tilly, what I'm getting at is I'd like to be Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> oh, in the wig and all. I think that mm. would be, um, I can, yeah. I'd love it. I mean, I'd love it. What a, a useful service that would be. I mean. um, Just a bit of help. Yeah. I'd call my charity that. 
A little bit of help. Do you need a little bit of help? Ring 0800-599-599. You can have a little bit of help. That's it. Do you want a bit of help? Just like just like yeah. a friendly neighbour or a fr- or a dad or like a an uncle might do if people if if you know these people had someone like that in their life. Just a little bit of help. I'll come round. I'll show you how to change a baby's nappy. I'll show you how to make up a bottle. I'll show you how to do a little bit of plaster in there. Do you know what I mean? Give you a little bit of help. I'll watch the kids for a bit. Do you know what I mean? Just just a little bit of help. And you've kind of got this, actually. You've got some services that do that, that kind of offer respite breaks and so on. But it, I think it would be more than just focused on kids. It would just be, would you like a little bit of help? Ring this number. I'll pop round. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that would be needed equally for adults um it as would. it is for, for children and families um yeah if only we could get the funding for that well anyway right let's bring this back to social workers so our mechanic friend kathy she saw a gap she was a social worker and is a social worker she saw a gap that uh, of where things were going wrong for her clients and she fixed it now obviously she just like you would with your equine therapy and I would with a little bit of help. I think I've got to say it that way, a little bit of help. It's just kind of like it rhymes, doesn't it? It rolls off the tongue, mm. a little bit of help. Yep. Just like I would with a little bit of help and you would with, you know, Tilly's trotting service. That's what we call oh, it. God. Tilly's, Tilly's that sounds trotters. awful. <laughs> Tilly's trotters. <laughs> Um, That's a blast from the past. We, I, should, I should clarify, that was one of the first podcasts that we ever recorded together. I think there was... Tilly's Trotters or something like that was mentioned. Tinder for Horses, that was the name of our first ever podcast. Tinder for Horses. Moving swiftly on. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think in terms of us in our professional roles, so what we are obligated to do, what we are legislated to do, and what we are tasked with doing for our clients, do you think social workers should be doing more for the people we support? In an ideal world, absolutely, yes. Um, but unfortunately, where we've got caseloads as high as they are, the pressures on services, I think that that question puts the onus back onto individual social workers when they're already crippling with Okay, with, let's with move the that question then. That are... Okay, Tilly, try okay. to s- slide out of this like the little politician you are. <laughs> In a world where we were adequately funded and had sufficient caseloads, should social workers as professionals and should social work as a service widen the scope and increase the offer of what we do for our clients beyond what is essentially a cycle of assessment intervention review? Should we have more hard skills that we can utilize to support our clients with akin to what Kathy Haynes doing by fixing their cars. Yeah, I would love it if we did. Um, but equally, I can see that actually there's value in having those services resourced by non-qualified social workers because I think people get very frightened about social work intervention and yeah, good point. see us as the bogeyman coming in. We still kids, that's what we do. Um and actually sometimes having a family worker or a social work assistant or or whatever the the titles are but actually that can be less intimidating for families and and they feel that, that an early intervention kind of thing is is a 
more acceptable than having intervention from a social worker. Um, I mean, if those barriers were broken down completely, then absolutely, yes, I think that's that's what we should be doing as social workers, that that good old-fashioned social work that, that people who have been qualified for a lot longer than I have um, can hark back to sometimes back in the, the 80s and 90s where social workers had a lot more freedom and a lot less paperwork to do. Um, but surely you break those barriers down by doing that. It's, you know, it's like the chicken and the egg here. We can't mm. sit here and say, well, actually, if those barriers were broken down, social workers would do more that's not how it works you have to offer people a reason to change their perspective and for me as a child protection social worker if I could go into a family and they'd say oh Vince you know I'm struggling I, I can't get to the court I can't get to the court group meeting today I can't get to a court hearing I can't get to a looked after review or whatever it is because I've got this on we'd be able to say do you know I'll do that for you and not be in a position where we feel like we have to block out half a day and lose loads of work if we have to do something simple like give a client a lift somewhere. You know, we, if we can actually do more on the front foot, then that changes perception because then you're doing more. And I think every social worker can do that. I, I, I sit with lots of clients. As an independent social worker, I'm blessed in that I, I get to work with clients every single week, multiple clients every single week, and they'll tell me stories of good social work and they'll sometimes tell me stories of bad social work. But I will hear those stories of good social work, very, very rare, and it's usually with children who've been sort of told to be fearful of the social worker. Very, very rare people will just hate social workers en masse. Very rare. In the real world, on the internet, yes, it happens all the time, but that's the internet, it doesn't really count. People are caricatures of themselves. <laughs> In the real world, People are decent, people are fair, people are just. If they've had a good experience of social workers, they will share that. And I hear that all the time. Just today, I was working with a family and they were talking about a wonderful social worker who was incredibly supportive of them. This is two or three years after the event. They're sharing her name with me, they're sharing her good deeds. No reason to really do that with me other than speak well. People are decent. If people are trapped properly and given the right support, they'll tell people. Do you not think that if we could do more, then we wouldn't need to cry out for the charm offensive and this, we wish the public would get us because it wouldn't matter because we'd be doing right and that word would spread and our esteem would go up because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right there. I have nothing really to argue with. Um, I in, in adults, we often have situations like when social workers have to go out and help move furniture just to, to okay. get a, someone back into the property that they're in or go out and, and buy some bedding for them to get them home from hospital or some food or, or something like that. Something that in the grand scheme of things is relatively minor, but that can sometimes allow someone to go back into their own home. Of um, and actually we're not, we're not discouraged from doing that in adult services. Certainly, um, I mean, there's, there's going to be certain managers that are that, that that do discourage that, but when you sort of balance the time and the resources of not doing something, so for, for us in our line of work, it's normally hospital discharge. If someone is, and I hate this term, but I'm going to use it because this is the colloquial term for it. But if someone's bed blocking in hospital, actually they're costing 
the public purse, hundreds and hundreds of pounds a day stuck in hospital um, when they don't need to be there. And if all it takes is a social worker to go out with the marigolds on and move some things around, clear some things up and allow them to get home, that in the grand scheme of things is is a much better way of resources rather than trying to spend ages working out a plan and and, and trying to look exhaust community options or family options to be able to sometimes just clear something up so um yeah I think it depends on the manager but it, sometimes it is actually encouraged which is is nice um and what social work should be are you doing more or less for your clients than you thought you would be doing when you trained as a social worker when you trained as a social worker do you did you think you would have a wider remit of support or a lesser remit of support, or was it just about right? Do you know what? I think it's just about right because I remember before I signed up for, or I started my social work training, I spoke to a social worker who did say to me, you do know that whatever you do, you're going to just be doing that assessment intervention review things and signposting (laughs) to other services. You do realise that you're not actually going to be doing the interventions yourself most of the time um so i think i was i was fortunately i was told quite early on um before i accepted my university place so i i kind of had that understanding about what i was letting myself in for but um i don't think anything ever prepared me for the amount of paperwork that we do i think i i expected to be doing a lot more face-to-face work Mm. than i ended up doing um but yeah what about you I I thought I'd be doing a hell of a lot more. I mm. I thought that my role as a social worker would kind of be social worker slash community activist slash agent of change slash counsellor. I genuinely believe that social workers would sit down and we would deliver most of the interventions ourselves. We would lead on family group conferences, we'd lead on that kind of mediation work, we'd lead in terms of um, parenting courses and parenting interventions, we would lead in terms of drug and alcohol interventions, we'd lead on like low-level counselling, things like that. I thought that we, for university, we would be equipped with those tools. We'd actually come out of university with hard skills. I genuinely did. I was that naive. It sounds absolutely <laughs> bizarre looking back on it some 14 years after the event. But I thought when I went to university that I would be learning hard, tangible skills that I could use to benefit the lives of the people I was supporting. I didn't think I'd be sitting learning about sociological theories. I didn't think I would need to spend too much time learning about anti-oppressive practice. I certainly didn't think I'd be doing a whole module on research methods. Like, really? Really? How how often tell you is research methods relevant to your work right now? Come on, really? Oh, I mean, do you know what? As a manager, I've had to use my statistics skills and things like that far more than I ever thought I would have to. I remember, I think it was only yesterday when I was asked to work out the mean waiting time and the median waiting time. Yeah, but Tilly, 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 that's basic upper primary school, lower secondary school maths. That isn't a module for a degree or a master's. It really isn't. That's basic maths. 
That's basic math. So I'm not to downplay what you're saying there, but that's basic maths. It really is. Not to downplay how long it took me to do it and work well, it out. Well, there we go. There we go. Sidestep that. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got Google these days, so we're good. But honestly, I, I thought we would come out with with actual hard skills that could benefit our clients rather than there is a feeling that university tries to teach social workers how to think rather than instills in us the power of what to do. I genuinely do. And look, that may be enough. That may be enough. And if that's the agenda, well done, it kind of achieves it. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Because even if your degree does teach you how to think, once you come off that degree course and you start to see how social work works in the real world, you gradually lose a lot of the emperor's new clothes ideology and realise, oh, well, that's how we really do it. It's not what it says in the textbook. And I was woefully naive. I thought that I would be in university discussing tangible interventions for the people I support. How do you do this? How do you do that? I got some of that on placement, but of course, everyone's placement's different. We're not, we don't come out with standardized placement experiences. We should in terms of hitting the, the, you know, the national standards and the professional capabilities framework and so on and meeting all the targets of our portfolio, but we don't. And I just, I was left feeling very short-changed by the experience I had as a student. Now, it has got a little bit better, particularly fast-track routes do it quite well. So in my line of work, if you look at Frontline, you know, the fast-track service for graduate training within children's social care, children's social work, they come out and they have their graduates really trained in the systemic way of thinking. That's good, one specific way. I just think we should have far more than that. And perhaps even if we don't get as students, we should have it as you know, mature professionals. That's what we, we should be doing CPD, tangible CPD. And I've told this story before and I'll tell it again. I paid for my own counselling diploma. It was a year long evening class and I undertook a diploma in counselling. Paid for that off my own back, did it on my own time. That elevated my profession so much the skills i gained from my counseling diploma honestly it supercharged my ability to engage with my clients to help my clients to empathize with them to show congruency to use that person-centered practice i was able to be a better social worker probably a better person better friend better family member as well through it because of those skills i had to do it off my own back i had to fund that myself it, it wasn't part of my course at all it wasn't part of my training certainly not part of my professional capabilities framework to do that but i did it um we're going to end on this one tilly what additional training and skills could help us offer more to our clients so i've mentioned there obviously that my counseling diploma and those skills really really helped me do you think there is something that we could be trained in or maybe just think about your area of expertise what sort of skills of tra and training could help us or you offer more to our or your clients i think that's a really difficult question to answer in terms of do you want another one then work. do you want a different question do you want a different question <laughs> i'll go with this one no, no. instead oh go hmm? on then Are right. You gonna... right we'll go with this one instead how often have you had to go outside of your professional remit to give your clients the help they need? Don't don't get yourself in trouble by doing this, but just how often have you had to do that? And how often do you think we have to do that in general? Now, what I mean by outside of our remit, I would say working more hours than you paid for. I would say, you know, checking on clients on evenings and weekends. I would say perhaps, you know, 
if you've ever given clients money out your own pocket, given them lifts somewhere, paid for food, paid for taxis, anything like that. Again, you don't need to go into details because I know bizarrely we can sometimes get in trouble for helping if it goes above our, <laughs> above and beyond our scope of practice. How often have you had to do yeah. that in your career? So many times, yeah. so many times, yeah. just getting someone a pint of milk or a loaf of bread or something or some basic putting some money on the electricity meter or gas meter or or giving them a lift like you said or or going above and beyond working additional hours countless I I couldn't even quantify it um I I I know that your answer is going to be exactly the same because we've talked about this before yeah I I've had to go above and beyond so many times but do you know what I've never felt bad doing it because it's doing the right thing. It's simply doing the right thing. I Exactly. How can you? How can you be in a situation where you know if you walk away from that family home and don't put your own hand in your own pocket and don't put £10 on the gas or electric meter, that that family and those children are going to be cold that night and they're not going to be able to cook? How can you do that? How can exactly. you? How can you not go and check in on a family on a weekend or not work late when you're the only person who's going to do that? How can you not go to the local shop and buy some bread and milk and eggs and just get a couple of provisions for the family? How can you not spend your time and you know, think, do you know what, I'm going to work a couple of hours late tonight because this family needs a bit of a lift somewhere? How can you not sit there and help a family tidy up the home because they're absolutely pulling their hair out because they don't have the time? I yeah. just... And, and if any time, yeah, and if anyone questioned you on that I mean I don't know how they could to be honest because what are you going to say oh yeah right my client was starving they had absolutely no food in the fridge but I know the correct channel would have been go to go back to to management and request a food bank voucher not forgetting that the food bank is probably closed by the time that you're actually visiting and go through all that rigmarole like a like who is going to say that is the wrong thing to do? And I think I always think if it's right in my heart, then I'm just going to do it. And that's that's just how social workers should be. Um, I'd never criticise any of my social workers and my team for doing things like that. I just think, well, good for you for for filling a gap that's left by a broken system. Excellently said, my friend. And I used to always think to myself, I would much rather get in trouble for doing the right thing than get away with it by not doing anything at all because I can defend that and the other thing is I can sleep easy at night I would rather go to bed at night worrying that oh I might get in trouble because I've spent some money out my own pocket and I shouldn't really have done that to help a client put some gas and electric on than go to bed on a night knowing that I was in a warm, comfortable, safe, happy home, but the family that I'd left at 6pm was sitting in the dark. How could you do that? How could you not do that? Yeah, exactly. We've got to be humans first before anything else. So Telly, I'll come back to the initial question. Should social workers be doing a lot more for our clients? Oh, well, of course, we, we do our, the best that we can. Um, and Such yes, a point. Why? Oh. Of course we do the best. Tilly, you are destined for upper oh. management. You are, oh, you are, no, you are, you are, before. you are exactly, you are exactly, you, you speak like, you speak like one, Tilly. You are, do you know what you are? You are on the trajectory. Answering like that, you are exactly on the trajectory you need to be on. 
You really are. You right. are you are destined for the upper echelons of management. You really are. Okay. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I am impressed. You don't sign it. It's like a criticism. <laughs> no, it's, it's, believe, believe you me, it is a personal criticism. But I can be, I can be impressed. I can be impressed by your ability to give non-answers, yet at the same time feel it's sad. Okay, fine. I will try one more time. One more time. Not. I don't want you to talk as Tilly who wants to be the new Lynn Romero. I don't want you to talk about Tilly who wants to be the queen of social work. Just tell me, Tilly, the human being, should social workers be doing a lot more for our clients? Yes. Yay, I've got it out. (laughs) I agree. I agree, my friend. And we should. We should. Look, there's no, look, you, you can caveat. You can say yes, but then you can caveat. So I would say, yes, of course we should, but we're doing the best we can in the system we've got. I wrote a blog about yeah. this last week. I, I wrote a, a column about this. Social workers do the best we, hand when, best we can when our hands are often tied behind our backs. We do the best we can because we'll go above and beyond. It can be both, Tilly. We can. We can say we should be doing more, but at the same time, we can say, well, we're not able to do more because of X, Y, and Z. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the answer that I would give in a much more politician, um, nuanced way. But yeah, that's ultimately it. Yeah, we should do more. You just, you play it too safe. You do, Tilly, you play it too safe. Yeah, like and you're always impressive. toe across the line or toe ah, just beyond, yeah. maybe toe ah, on the line. <laughs> I am an habitual line crosser and that's just how we live our life over here. Well, listeners, until next week, um, please do consider heading over and checking out this story at mysocialworknews.com. Give us a follow or drop us a message on any of our social media channels. You can find me via Social Work World on Facebook, Instagram, and we've got a Social Work World group. You can also find the Social Work News platform on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find Tilly by searching Tilly Anya on Twitter. It's a mix of social work and it's a mix of holidays. If you like those two things, which I'm pretty sure that 99.9% of you do, do give Tilly a follow. We'll be back next week, which will be our 60th episode with who knows what. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.